Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Builders Build podcast. I'm your host, George Poo. Today, I'm so glad to introduce you to our today's uh, guest who I've tried very hard to convince uh, him to come to the show with me. Today's guest is Tori Reese, who's the founder and CEO of Equi, which is making elite investing 200 times more accessible. Tori is a repeat founder, having scaled three venture-backed startups from just a founding teams to hundreds of millions in enterprise value. And his last company is Trust Token, which is backed by Andreessen Horowitz and has raised over $40 million in total and is currently the largest uncollateralized Web3 lending protocol in the world. And now Tori is onto what he thinks will be his largest impact company to date. And I think Tori's voice is a voice every founder should listen to. So Tori, thanks so much for coming onto the show today and thanks for making the time. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So before we start, uh, I think the name Equi is very interesting. So tell us more about the name Equi and what it means. Yeah. So we we actually pronounce it Equi and it's it's actually Latin origin. So you might recognize like Equilateral or Equilibrium. So the original name of the company was Equilibrium, but we shortened it because we have a lot of overseas customers. We also realized that typing the original URL was Equilib it was Equilibrium Ventures. Dot com. It's a very long URL, but equi means equal. And so we think, especially given our mission of making elite investing accessible, we think that it's very fitting for what we do. Yep. And that's very interesting. And I think on equi's website is saying it's looking to become the family office for everyone, which I think is a very interesting concept. Is that an accurate description of what you guys are doing? Yeah. The, the concept of family office style investing meaning a diversified uh, portfolio of private market investments. It's a concept that not many people are familiar with. Some people are familiar with what a family office is, and uh, we're attempting to give that same caliber of investments and diversification, but do it through an app and, and, and use technology to, to make it accessible to a broader audience. So who are usually the people investing in family offices and who are the people equally serving right now? Yeah. So it. Family offices are, they're pretty expensive, right? Cause think about it. You would have to employ a full-time headcount to effectively manage your family's money. And so the families that tend to have family offices tend to have as much as a hundred or 200 million, at least that's actually the low end. Most family offices start to make sense. And when you have in the hundreds of millions of net worth up to, you know, the billions. And so. This concept of having a dedicated group of people who are focused on sourcing and diligencing the best private market investments in the world on your behalf, that's what we really want to bring to people through, through our platform. Yep. That's very interesting. And I think Tori, like today's, I think in our society, there's always this debate about social equity, right? The 1% or the richest people in the world can manage their money through family offices and such. Whereas average working people don't really have, is that also part of your vision of why you started Equi? Share us more about uh, your reason of starting Equi, if you can. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of it for me dated back to, I've been a financial literacy educator for almost a decade now. And as I found a bit of success in my career in, in, in really the past few years during my last company, Trust Token, I changed the way that I was investing because I had crossed past the accredited investor threshold and started to have enough money to where it made sense to diversify. It, the problem was that I was still telling everybody 
you should dollar cost average into Vanguard funds. But I no longer believed that was actually the best way to invest because the more I studied, the more I learned about the space, the more I educated myself, it became very clear to me that dollar cost averaging into Vanguard funds is fine if you want average outcomes and average results. But particularly as we were moving in this paradigm shift from a declining interest rate environment into where we are today, which is an increasing interest rate environment, what's more important than ever before to diversify away from the public markets. And so the original inspiration was how could I actually do this myself, given that I didn't have enough money for a family office and all the financial advisors out there, they don't really offer differentiated investing. Um, that's not really their value. They basically just put you into a basket of passive public market investments. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned about those passive investment portfolios, which I think Vanguard, BlackRock, ETFs, a lot of people are buying into. Aside from like them not looking, shifting into a new paradigm, is there any other reasons why investors shouldn't consider those investments? Well, think about it just on the simplest level, which is when you invest in an index fund, you're buying the whole market. And that's the best way to invest in an efficient market, like a publicly traded, like the public stock market. The idea is you're not going to outperform because you would need an information advantage or some sort of advantage, which is very hard to get in a, in a market that's as competitive as uh, the public equities market. Now in the private markets, there's a very different dynamic at play and I can touch on that separately, but that that's why the argument is rather than try and pick stocks and pick winners, because odds are you'll lose to the market, just buy the whole market. So that's why this advice has run out or has won out to invest in passive indexes. So I think it's actually good advice. The problem though, is that if you have your, all of your eggs in one basket, which again, when you buy an index, you think you're diversified because you hold a whole bunch of different stocks, but really you're not, you really have an ex essentially one return driver of the whole portfolio, which is the performance of the stock market, right? So you're basically betting on the continued expansion and growth of the U S economy. But when we go through cycles, we're starting to see right now, if you have only one return driver in your portfolio, you're going to suffer. So that's why the best and most sophisticated investors in the world, they add multiple return drivers to their portfolio. So they don't just have one, they might have many. And so that's really what I mean when I say diversify, it's not saying not to have the U S stock market as a return driver. It's saying that it should just be one of many. That's very interesting. So Tori, tell us more about those additional return drivers um, in the market today and how is equity looking to leverage that for its. Yeah. Well, so you can think about real estate's another good example. When you invest in real estate, it is often, it's, it can be considered a different return driver in your portfolio because what generates the returns in let's say commercial real estate investment is very different than what generates returns in a Vanguard fund. So let's say you own a, a piece of a industrial warehouse and it's on a 10 year lease with, let's say like Amazon, okay. right? The, what is going to dictate the success or failure of that investment is completely different than what will dictate the success of the U S stock market. So uh, again, like unless uh, you want as many different return drivers, another one could be like unique hedge funds that trade on volatility as an asset class, completely non-correlated, right? To the performance of the public stock market. So th there's lots of strategies and I can give many examples that when you add these additional return drivers, your performance actually goes up while the risk that you're taking actually goes down. 
And that's really the idea that um, most people are just starting to realize, but professional investors ha have drastically changed their investing styles over the past 30 years to where now over half their portfolio is an alternative investments for this very reason that I'm describing. That's very interesting. I mean, just a follow-up question on that. I think, Tori, you mentioned, I think I saw it on Equi's website, family offices and endowments generally like four times more returns than an average investor. Is why you just described like the return drivers primarily the reason why they're overperforming? I'm really curious to look at that. Yes. Yes, okay. no, that's exactly right. So it's a very simple, it's a very simple formula and, and there's been a lot of papers written about this, but you know, the more diversified, meaning the more diverse return drivers in a portfolio, and there, there is a point of diminishing returns, but the more that you add, the better the overall portfolio will perform over time because you'll have less odds of a drawdown and steadier returns over time. So that's really the, the to me, the golden goose, so to speak, the thing to, to, to chase is a steady, low volatility return that can perform in all market environments that will outperform the investments that do really well sometimes and then crash 50%, basically the ones that have lots of volatility, because it's much harder to make back your losses than it, it is a concept called geometric losses, but it, it's, it's much harder to make back your losses than it is to just continue steadily compounding, even if it seems like you're making lower risk. That's very interesting. Uh, I also want to ask a question about the number of years or the term of the investments, because when a family office is invest in the real estate uh, market, for example, they might be able to invest mm -hmm. for five or 10 years. Whereas like an individual investor may have, may want like a short-term time frame, for example, six months or 12 months. So I'm wondering how equities terms are for your investors on a platform. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, there's a concept of liquidity, right? And uh, two concepts. One is around time preferences. So when you're a institutional investor, you can afford to have your money locked up for seven to 10 years. And that's totally okay because you might be investing right. on a hundred year time horizon, right? When you're an individual, it's much harder to be illiquid for that long period of time because you have needs. Maybe you want to buy a home or you want to send your kid to college or you want to get a, another degree, whatever the case yeah. might be. So there are some investments like venture capital and, and private equity and real estate that can often have long periods of illiquidity. One way of addressing this is creating secondary markets so people can actually sell their stakes and they don't have to be locked in for the full period of time. That's one approach that we're taking in, in some of the more illiquid uh, asset classes. But then there's another, which is what's nice about hedge funds and private credit. You can actually have much more attractive liquidity terms. So for example, our flagship products, we offer uh, quarterly liquidity to investors. So you're, you're not actually tying yourself up for seven to 10 years, although it is designed to be a long-term investment. You're, there are ways to unwind or withdraw your investment. Yeah, I think liquidity part is definitely a, a very great feature set. So let's talk more about on like building uh, equity. I think you spoke about earlier in the podcast, you spoke, it was after you were wrapping up on your previous startup, you wanted to launch a new startup, but you also don't have a hundred million dollars in the bank to create a family office. So what was the journey like of launching equity or building equity? Yeah. Yeah. So tr trust token is still around and it's doing pretty well, but when I was thinking about equity, I couldn't get the idea out of my head. And uh, ironically, this third time around, I thought about it very differently than I did the first two. I think when I was the very 
at the very start when I was starting my first company. It was almost like I had this like chip on my shoulder of I have to do this. Like I've always, my whole life I had been very entrepreneurial, but like all I really wanted to do was start companies. And so there was this kind of draw drive towards I have to start something. Ironically, the way I approached it <laughs> after having been through it twice is it's such a painful process. Like starting a company, at least for me, and I won't talk for everybody, but for me, it's so hard and there are so many ups and downs and you have to be very comfortable kind of like getting uh, kicked in the face, so to speak, like just again and again, and just dealing with the stress and the unexpected hardships. Um, I've learned to enjoy it. Like, I think part of it is like one, learn to make, you know, lemonade out of all the lemons. But number, th the second thing is I approached it with this attitude of, I'm going to try and find every reason not to start this company rather than trying to find reasons to start it. So with Equi, I made a long list of everything that could possibly go wrong or be a reason not to start it. And so I spent months in the research phase doing lots of research, both reading, talking to experts, all sorts of uh, talking to lawyers, like all sorts of stuff, doing everything I could to convince myself not to start the business rather than trying to convince myself to start it. And it, it ended up being, I think, a lot more effective because by the time I finally got to the point where we did actually end up moving forward, me and my my co-founders, it was only because I felt like I had no other choice. Like I had, I had to start it because I had looked down every single possible avenue and there was no longer any excuses because I was like, I feel like we had definitively found a real opportunity and there was no reasons, not regulatory, not demand-driven, supply-driven. I had eliminated all the possible reasons not to do it at that point. And only then did I actually do it. So unfortunately, it's like I, I, I was trying not to do it and then until I had no choice. <laughs> yeah, it was a very interesting way to approaching things. As I, and I totally agree with you on the repeat dread when you're starting a new company, the, the kind of ups and downs you have to go through. So we can be really relatable there. So Terry, can you t share us more, a little bit more about like how you were finding the product market fit? Um, I know you come from finance or fintech. Um, I know you understand the problem is already existing. Uh, what did you do to convince yourself this is really the thing and there's really no reason to not. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's actually important that people understand. I don't like formally have a background in finance, right? It's not like mm -hmm. I studied that in school. It's not as though I started my career in finance. I started my career at Microsoft. I studied um, international studies and, and behavioral economics and stuff like that. Things that are totally, to a certain extent, they're unrelated. But the reason I say that mm -hmm. is because I think people talk themselves out of being able to do things. But the truth is we live in a world where information is unbelievably abundant. And I think you can become an expert in virtually any topic. I have a friend who started a, a space company and they're doing extremely well. And he had no background at all. It's not like he was a formally trained physicist or has a background as an, in astrophysics or aeronautics. But I think he's become a true world-renowned expert through applied knowledge and, and through learning. I've read an unbelievable amount. I've probably read a lot more than any, let's say, someone who maybe took a finance degree. I, I would argue I know a lot more from both a practical and then, yes, from like a learning, studying perspective than I think you could ever learn in school. And I say that because I think it's important for entrepreneurs to feel empowered that there's no such thing as no one's going to give you permission. It's not like some degree is going to qualify you to, to start a company. So I want to clarify that, if that makes sense first. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, totally, totally makes sense. Uh, 
And then the second thing you asked was why, to, to clarify, you said why we started Acquia or why, what finally made me convinced? Was that what the question was? Yep. Yep. What finally made you convinced? Yeah. So I was convinced that this macro shift was very real. That much was clear. What I was less convinced was why hadn't this business been started by someone else? Okay. Because in general, I needed to figure out, is there some sort of like regulatory constraint? Is there some structural reason that this business can't exist or shouldn't exist? And so to do that, I, the, the deeper I dug, we ultimately arrived at three sort of questions that if we validated them, we were going to start it. The, and, and, and so one was around, can we validate that the demand is real and it's now and it's present? It's because if you're wrong about with, if you're wrong with timing, you're just plain wrong. Even if you're right over the long run. The second thing was around on the supply side. What I mean by that is like the investments, the hedge funds, the, the, the private credit strategies, private equity. It's a very complex and opaque space. If we can't, if we couldn't come up with a proprietary advantage and unique approach on the investing side, there's not much value, right? There's a bunch of marketplace companies out there that are quite good, like Yield yep. Street or Cadre. They have their pros and cons, but they exist. So if we can't do something meaningfully different on the actual investment side, then we wouldn't have done it. And then the third thing was on the regulatory side. I know, <laughs> having started three financial technology companies, that innovation in fintech is as much an understanding and innovation on the regulatory side as it is in technology. And so, or, or acquisition, whatever, wherever you see the innovation, you have to understand the regulatory side. So if we couldn't find a regulatory model or arbitrage that we thought was exciting or valid and could make this business possible, then that would be a, the, the third reason. So those were the three questions. And I can tell you that, I mean, I don't want to bore anybody, but like we eventually, we were able to actually, we validated all three of those, meaning we proved demand. We had people willing to hand over a million dollars to us, right? Wow. Completely an unproven concept each, meaning each customer handing over a million dollars. That's very validating. On the supply side, we really had some big breakthroughs on our ability to get better data and source unique investments that no one else had discovered. And then on the regulatory side, we found a, a model that we think is unique and we haven't seen any other uh, company taking advantage of. And so the combination of those three, and this took place over months, right, of, of, of work, finally got to a point where it's okay, let's raise money. This is a real opportunity and let's uh, build this company. Yeah, I really love the idea of that. Sorry, and and I wanted to shift our um, topic a little bit more to talent because I know, like, from LinkedIn, from looking at your profile and looking at what people have been saying about Equity as an employer, as you as a CEO, showed me that you really understood how it is to attract, uh, in your own words, world class talent, right? So, what is your principle when you're looking for co-founder or early employees? Uh, how are you approaching hiring in general? Yeah, I think. It depends really on the business. I want to be careful because a lot of people represent things as like universal truths, like saying, oh, you have to do this to find yeah. the right co-founder. But I think it's really dependent on the type of business you're starting. And I think a lot of it comes back to being like intellectually honest about what is necessary. Do you need to have a, a technical breakthrough? Are you starting a quantum computing company? Because <laughs> then you better have a co-founder who's capable of probably being one of the few people in the world capable of conceiving a technical breakthrough 
significant enough to move. If you're starting a company that's like a, a, a basic kind of SaaS company, like doing a, a B2B basic SaaS company, you probably don't need like a breakthrough technical co-founder. And so we're going back to our business. Like I knew for this business to succeed, what I would need is a partner who was the equivalent of a breakthrough technical co-founder, but on the finance side of the business. And really that's what Itai is. He, I think, is a, a generational talent when it comes to money management and, and trading in capital markets. I think anyone who watches our, our uh, monthly calls or, or the videos we post to, to YouTube will understand, like very few people, I think, have a grasp of markets in the way that Itai does and an ability to capitalize on that understanding. His ability has allowed us to create truly differentiated financial products. And so <clears throat> that's very important. But I will say that the other thing that is unbelievably important is you need to be aligned in terms of the, 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 the vision and understanding what you both want to get out of the experience. Can you engineer a win-win? And it helped, for example, Jeremy, my other co-founder up front, we talked about what we all want to get out of the experience and he's already had a lot of success. And so I think for him, he wasn't, he didn't have the same chip on his shoulder that he did with his first company or a second for him. This is much more about, I want to build the type of company that I want to live inside and be be part of for years and years. And that was, but knowing that upfront allowed us to, to set the standard. So it's really, I think around communications and expectation setting is so important. And then I'd say the third thing is, is a shared set of values to me is really important because if you are not aligned on that, I think it's very hard to build a cohesive culture. So I think those were the, really the things that have helped us be successful. And at the end of the day, also people need to be great at their functional role, but that to me is like table stakes, right? If they're not able to do it, do incredible work in whatever category or specialty they're in, that obviously is, it can be a deal breaker. Yep. I totally agree. And I think both Jeremy and Itai has already have successful careers and they have a successful job before joining Equi as co-founder. So were there a lot of, I guess, work on your end as a CEO? to, you know, get them onto the mission to try to uh, launch Equi together. What was that journey like? Yeah, well, we are very lucky in that, like all three of us have actually been through co-founder breakups. And so we all had, um, experienced what a bad partnership is like, and we all grew from that and we all had an idea of what we really wanted, but no, I mean, I've still had to do a lot of work as CEO trying to invest in better communication amongst the three of us and building the relationship, improving our communication, realigning uh, on our roles and responsibilities as like the company scales. That all is hard work. There's no substitute for that. And at the end of the day, you have to remember, I mean, it doesn't matter how talented someone is, like at the end of the day, they're a person, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And people are hard. I think anyone who has been in the startup game long enough will tell you, it's almost never like technical challenges that are impossible that kill a company. It's people problems, it's communication issues, it's the, respecting people's uh, emotions and their psychology and their communication preferences. Uh, it's really hard, especially in a really high stress environment like a startup. So I don't know, I recommend people uh, check out things like Conscious Leadership Group, get a coach. There's a lot of great books, but you know, there's no such thing as like maybe the single great reference guide 
I've pieced together tools from the Mankind Project and Conscious Leadership Group and even experiences from childhood, I think, in the Boy Scouts, right? There's all these little things that little practices that have been parts of organizations for a very long time. And there's a reason they've lasted in many cases, as long as they have, is that they, they work. And I think finding what works and is authentic to you and your team is is important. And you don't have to, you can borrow from others, but also just do what's authentic. Okay. Yeah, that's really great advice. And I've never, you know, personally experienced co-founder breakups, but I do, I do think it's a very important topic. So Tori, how are you and, you know, Jeremy and Itai, how are you guys keeping on the same page at all times? How do you as CEO making sure they're you know, doing okay and don't have a lot of stress? Yeah, I think it's creating a space where it's safe for people to share like when they're having a hard time or when they're having a breakdown or when they need time off. So I think we've done a really good job of that where I think we've all at various points had those really rough days where we're just like, hey, I, I, I need to take a mental health day and, and like recharge and being able to communicate that and support each other is really important. But I'll also be the first to admit that it's been really hard in a distributed remote team environment, keeping in in as much contact as, during the more hectic times. It's really, it's a lot harder versus like when you're in the same office. So I think we've changed we processes. Like we used to do daily standups and then we switched to weekly and then we kind of just check it intermittently. And then we had one-on-ones and evolving what works as the team grows because we're 40 people now and if you think about it 12 months ago we were only three people that's a lot of growth and a lot of changes of best practices and how we're using our time so i think just being open to to feedback with one another and then setting acknowledging when you drop the ball and taking responsibility and then also revisiting what cadence works I would say the law of three of like, when you're three people, you can choose something that works, but then reevaluate when you're nine people. And then when you're 27, reevaluate again. So as you keep, you know, growing in those multiples of three, everything's going to break and you need to re reevaluate. But if you don't set aside time to reevaluate, then it can become a big problem. Yep. Uh, very interesting. Uh, and I think Tori, I recently saw on Twitter, there's a saying, say like experienced founders share everything with their team, share the stress with their team. Whereas like newer founders, I guess even including myself, like we don't really share that. We bear that with our own as CEO because we're afraid to tell the team bad news. So what is your take on this and what have you done so far uh, with it? Yeah. I mean, I think all things, I think there's some truth. And I think one thing that is true is when I'm having a really hard day, I'll share with the team like, hey, I didn't get good sleep last night. So I'm sorry if I'm a little irritable or whatever. I'll call something like that out and, or if I'm have going through something really challenging, I'll, I'll also share that. But I do actually think that a quality of a great leader is being able to maintain a sense of composure in high stress situations and then make good decisions. And so like something I personally have pushed myself to do is push myself, be in a lot of situations that are really high pressure where I have to make good decisions and practice that even outside of work. So like things like skydiving. I mainly was attracted to skydiving because you have 15 seconds of free fall and you need to overcome the kind of inner voice that's like screaming at you to, to then be aware of your surroundings and then make good decisions very quickly. And I think there's lots of opportunities to practice it in relationships outside of work, as well as situations and hobbies outside of work, and then bring that back in because I don't think there's any excuse to be a 
a jerk and treat people poorly. And so I do think that there is a certain, ex I think the best executives I've worked with are able to be calm under pressure. They're still passionate, but they know when and how to, I think emotion and there's like soft power. And I think it's a lot more, I think that's a lot more powerful tool than the more blunt force yelling and screaming at people. Yeah, but I fully agree with that. And I think Tori, a very interesting thing you just mentioned is like right now you, you guys have more than 40 people, whereas a year ago, um, you only have three, right? And I think most of the many seed founders after ra they raise some initial capital, one immediate thing they have to look at is to hiring early employees for the company. And I've heard this is a very important topic, but not a lot of things are said about it. So what are your principles of hiring early employees and what approaches did you take? Yeah. Yeah, something we did, which I think served us is we were really fast to hire contractors to fill gaps early on, but very slow to hire full-time employees. And the principle there is it's easy to hire and fire a contractor. It's not very, you know, expensive and you can, yep. so meaning you can have a lower bar, um, for a contractor. Whereas a full-time hire, it can be, you, you, you don't want to get in the habit of, I've never believed in the like hire fast, fire fast mentality. I think that just means you have really bad hiring practices. So each time we've hired a full-time employee and it hasn't worked out, I've really reflected on what went wrong and how we can prevent that from happening again. And so if you look at the kind of curve of our hiring, it was like initially tons of contractors, which has declined steadily over time. And then we just see a steady increase in terms of our full-time headcount. So that's my attitude is like better to set a really high bar and maintain it, but don't do that at the expense of not growing and moving super fast. Just find other ways like contractors to continue moving. Yeah. Um, I think that's de definitely a very unique approach. I, I don't think I've ever heard of that approach before, which is really great to hear. I do want to touch on to like the actual hiring process, because I, I know a lot of CEOs, they have to put themselves up front. They have to actively. Um, proactively search for talent and messaging talent to get them on board instead of just being passive and waiting for applications to fold in. So what is that like um, for you and for equity or is what your principle? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed that. Oh, I'm just saying, yeah. Kind of uh, yep. I just mentioned like, how are you guys doing it? Are you proactively reaching out to folks or are you mostly just evaluating great applications? Yeah. One of the other best things that I think we did was hire a head of talent fairly early. In the current hiring environment where it's unbelievably competitive for top talent, if you're not an amazing recruiter or constantly doing your own recruiting, it's going to be very hard to find good people. And so we invested early in hiring our head of talent, Jess, and she just did an absolutely incredible time, uh, incredible job accelerating our hiring. So now if you look at the team today, the majority of the people were recruited by me, but I would say close second now is Jess. And she's done an amazing job. Another thing that we did, which is goes against what some people say is we weren't, we didn't hesitate to, to use recruiters because in this environment, a single, like an, a single incredible hire can completely change the tra trajectory of your business early on. And we had so much work to do that we, we needed support. And so, so having a combination of early recruiters and then eventually ahead of talent, I think helped us hire quickly and grow while maintaining a really high uh, hiring bar. It's very interesting. And let me also ask, like you, you mentioned on Tori before the recording that you actually have an upcoming engineering interview you have to go through. So my question is like, how much time do you actually spend personally on recruiting? Is that like a large percentage of your day is actually spending on talent? A lot. Okay. Yeah. I probably spend 20 to 
probably 20 to 40% of my time is like interviews with team members and uh, recruiting and many of our executives I personally recruited and, and I, and you'll ask them, I mean, it took in some instances before they joined and there's some people who I'm still talking to who I know it'll take maybe more months to go and, and I hope to still see them join the team. And so I think having good best practices around recruiting as a founder and, and people, I think we'll react much better to be recruited by a founder than, than by a member of the team because the vision better than anyone, you understand the values and you represent it. And I think people re react well to, to, to that and to hearing directly from a founder as opposed to through some out, someone else on the team. So it's still something I spend a lot of time on. My next three calls after our interview today are with the head of engineering candidates. Okay. That's yeah. I, I, that's amazing. Um, so for the talent, I think also one problem early founders encounter is that they might have an urgent need, but they might not, you know, have a, the candidate fill it immediately. So am I assuming that for equity guys, when you have a need, do you fill it urgently with contractors first and then finding the full-time employee? What is your approach on that? What, what is it? You skipped out again. Yeah. Uh, when you guys are having an urgent need to fill like a role, mm -hmm. do you guys mm -hmm. fill it first with a contractor, like immediately filling the role or do you take the time and see how painful it might be? What is your approach there? Yeah. Well, so like I said, early on when it was just a few of us, we took the approach of just immediately hiring expensive contractors who we knew okay. could do the work. But then as we hired full-time employees, we, we rolled those folks off. Okay. In some instances, those contractors actually became full-time employees. It just depends on the situation. Okay. That's very interesting. So, yep. Yeah, I think we learned a lot on the talent. Now I want to shift a little bit more on, sorry, on the core values and principles, because I know I'm sure the startup industry is evolving and with, with evolving, expanding, there's really a lot of stress. I think a lot of founders and well, I mean, and investors are having. And I think maybe like the reason why they're having those stress is because they always wanted to be big, be up, which maybe some can argue is more core values and principles can actually help in this case. I think you're the third time um, founding a company. And I think you mentioned you have a lot of uh, core values and principles uh, for yourself. So can you, if you don't mind, can you share us a little bit more about what those are? Yeah. So I, I, again, I think that values are initially just a reflection of the, the, let's say the founders and, and the founders values, but I actually think that values should evolve to reflect the values of one, the team and two, the, the kind of company and industry that you operate within. The example of that is like our values today. Some of them are purely come from me and my co-founders, like tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. And for us, what that's really about is your intent really matters. And our intent with this business is to make the world a better place. And we want to only work with people who kind of share positive intent. And, but then there are other, other values that I think are critical because of the business that we're in. So one of our other values is be a fiduciary, <laughs> right? And that for us translates to always acting in our customer's best interest, treating their money as though it was our own. And that's important because we're a regulated financial organization. And, but obviously a value like that wouldn't make sense in a healthcare context or in a, you know, big data context. So our core values, I think are very authentic to us as a company, like Cheetah craftsmanship is all about moving incredibly fast and getting things done, but being a craftsman, so still like producing excellent work and reflecting and improving it. But they're kind of two contradictory ideas, right? Like 
she does it really fast. Craftsman you think of as being maybe like slow and methodical, but we like to have a culture of and rather than or in many regards. And then the others are around lifting each other up, conscious candor. And then the last one is no lone wolves, equis hunt and build systems together. And so a lot of these are like kind of funny, like we came up with them on our own, but they represent how we interact, how we communicate our different interaction patterns and team patterns. And it's been really critical to us building a cohesive culture and hiring people. So everything we do in terms of hiring and firing and promoting, it's all through the lens of our, our values. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned culture, uh, which is actually going to be my next question. But I think Tori, you also mentioned like the COVID age or even like the post COVID age, growing and maintaining a distributed team is very difficult when it comes to culture. And I think a lot of remote teams struggle with culture. So how are you keeping culture intact? I agree when you guys are maybe working from different parts of the country. So it is a lot harder to build good culture in a remote or distributed environment. However, we have found that getting together on a you know seasonal basis or quarterly basis is really critical to getting everybody comfortable with working with one another. So having a combination of an in-person strategy and our default distributed strategy, that's important. The other thing that's really important, like I said, is a strong culture is really dictated by who's in the room. So when we, when I say we hire and fire and promote all through the lens of the values, that has a huge impact because that means the only people who get through are people who align with our values. And then that organically creates the culture. People end up taking initiative and becoming culture carriers and creating things like our Eric, who's our head of finance, every day he's posting questions in our fitness and wellness channel, like asking people about, you know, their favorite tips and hacks and tricks for wellness. And because one of our values is around Renaissance ambition and, and improving ourselves outside of work, we, and, and having fun and, and having multiple dimensions to our personalities, we, we celebrate that and support him and everyone loves getting involved and, and hopping on top of that. But no one asked him to do that, right? Like he just does that organically. And we have other members of the team who have done all sorts of stuff like that. But I think it starts with making sure that you get the right people on board. And then everything else comes downstream of that, like creating the conditions for other people to take initiative. We sponsored a book club that now is run by one of the engineers on our team and whatever people want to do, encourage people to take initiative and align it with the values. That's what yep. we've done. I'm so glad you mentioned about like personal wellness outside of work, uh, Terry, because I think that's such a big problem in the Valley and in the tech industry right now, people are burning out, but I think people are maybe not taking care of themselves when they are working in very high intensity, like you said, in a sorry environment. Yeah. So you said there's a book club and there's other things that you guys are doing, but what are you doing, I guess, personally and at work to make sure that you and the team are not burning out or are improving outside of work? What are we doing to ensure that the team uh, doesn't, what you burn you out. out there? Doesn't oh, burn, burn out. out. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think one thing is we have a minimum vacation policy. So what's interesting is rather than doing unlimited, which I think has actually led to a lot of unhealthy habits in Silicon Valley, because usually people interpret unlimited as uh, not taking any vacation <laughs> and companies do it because then they don't have to pay people for unused PTO. Okay. We took a really different approach. We actually came up with a novel PTO policy where we say, okay, everyone in the company gets from you know Christmas to New Year's off, like the whole office is shut down except for critical personnel. They can take the vacation later, but they'll stay on just to field customer requests, things like that. So there's default table stakes. We're all going to be off during that period. So people can really unplug. Then on top of that, you get 
15 days, um, plus or minus five days. So that's actually got like a variance band. So that means at minimum, you have to take 10 days, but at most you could actually take 20. And it's acknowledging that some years you're going to have to work maybe a lot harder and you forget to take some vacation, you've got stuff going on. So maybe you take only 10, but then you'll get rollover. That means the next year you get an extra five. So you can actually go as high as 25. But then other years, maybe you've got a lot going on. So you take 20 days off. So you've moved to the higher end of the spectrum. We're supportive of that. And, and then obviously on top of that, we have a 12 floating holiday schedule. So you actually choose your own holidays. So if you want to do Hindu holidays or Jewish holidays, you can do that. You don't have to just stick with the federal Christian holiday schedule. So our, our policy is designed to ensure that people take time off, they unplug. And then in terms of avoiding burnout, a lot of it has to do uh, with all the managers are really empowered to make sure that their team is taking care of themselves and, and they, that everyone kind of watches out for each other. And I think we've done a really good job of that so far. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. I, this is the first time I've heard of the, the holiday schedule you mentioned. I think uh, I should definitely implement that in my company to start with. So yeah, Terry, I think next I really want to talk about more about like the, how can customers get started with Equi right now? And who are you guys currently opening customers from? Yeah. So right now we have a wait list of grown into the thousands. We get a lot of people applying every single week. Unfortunately, we can't get to everybody yet, but what we're doing is we're onboarding, we're onboarding new folks every single month and we're giving, we, we do a high touch experience. So we make sure that our products can actually solve their you know, financial problems and help them achieve their financial goals. So we have a process that's a combination of human high touch and handled by our app. And so we, on the marketing side, have had a lot of success with our content and we've been, we haven't spent any money on marketing yet. And yet we've been, we've grown to, we're approaching a billion dollars in top of the funnel interest. And that's, I think a lot of it is a sign of the times. Because right now we're one of the only places that in a market that's red everywhere and losing money, <laughs> we're green and we have investments that are producing returns month in and month out. And I think that's, that's something that this current market environment is the best tailwind we could have asked for because it proves the value of everything that we've been preaching. Mm -hmm. Are there any requirements uh, on the investor side? Uh, for example, does the customer has to be accredited? Uh, is there any account minimum for them to get started right now on, on the wait list? Yep. Yeah, right now we're limited. We're limiting to accredited investors. We will be launching some products that are available to retail quite soon and that have a much lower minimum. Our flagship products that we launched, we're kind of in what I consider the Tesla Roadster phase of our business. Th their current minimum is $350,000, but that's down from 1 million last year. And um, we're continuing to drive the cost of entry down. But people have to realize that if you wanted to assemble like almost an identical portfolio to our flagship products today, you would need at least about 60 or $70 million and like a, a full-time analyst or a few of them really just to replicate what we're doing. So in that regard, we, we, it's closer to like 200 times improvement in terms of access, but I think we can do even better. I think we're going to be able to get it to where it's like a 500 fold. Type improvement. And what is, what's your vision um, for Equi, maybe the, for, the, for the next five years? My, my vision for us in the next five years is to become the de facto destination for uh, world-class alternative investments so that anyone who wants to add a managed portfolio of great 
alternative investments to to their own portfolio can do so easily. And so really we can have a world where people can have portfolios as good as a, a billionaire family office with much, much less money. And that the, I, I think where we're going is, is going to help people have a lot more resiliency and a, m- a lot more confidence in preserving their wealth and achieving financial independence rather than just being at the whims of the movements of the public uh, markets. Yeah, I, I think the public market in recent months has been really be volatile. And I'm glad uh, Equity is having the success it is having right now. So yeah, thank you so much, Tori, for coming to the show. I always enjoy talking to repeat founders like yourself. I think the perspectives, the values, and the, and the thought process that you bring, it's so different from like an early stage founder or, or first-time founder. So thanks again for coming to the show. Uh, and I really hope to chat with you very soon. Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.